Okay, great to have all you here today. Uh, as we come to uh, the last few chapters of the book of Amos, let's go to God and to ask Him to help us understand His Word. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we confess that it is hard to understand your words as we bridge the many different uh, thousands of years between us and Amos' time and the different cultures. But we know that through the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, you'll be able to show us the eternal truths of who you are and who we are and what we need to do to be right before you. And we pray that you'll help us to understand your word today. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm sure that uh, many of you don't go watch plays. Uh, I, I only started watching plays because my wife forced me to. Uh, but I remember when I was uh, young, I had to study uh, a play for my literature class. And uh, it was uh, this play, which is called uh, Waiting for Godot. Okay, anyway, it was quite an interesting play. Uh, it's up here. Uh, okay, see, I, 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 I actually culturally enrich you on uh, Sunday mornings. Okay, so the next slide. Okay, so it's actually a very famous play. And it's actually a play uh, which centers around these two people. One called uh, Vladimir, another guy called uh, Estrogen. And uh, basically they're waiting and waiting for this character called Godot to come. But the problem is that uh, Godot never comes. So, uh, next slide. So basically these two characters, Vladimir and Estrogen, and they're waiting for Godot. And there are two acts. In the first act, Godot never comes. The second act, Godot never comes as well. So according to uh, many scholars, this, this play is called The Theatre of the Ab- Absurd. Okay, it's apparently some uh, absurdist philosophy because Godot actually represents God. You see, you know, Godot, God, right? And actually, the, the play is about the meaninglessness of life as these two characters, Vladimir and Estrogen, wait for God. And as they're waiting and endlessly waiting, they come across people and uh, they witness a lot of selfishness, meanness, abuse and cruelty. So in one scene, there's a slave master and a slave, and the slave master eats chicken and drinks wine without sharing it with other people, and he throws the bones, and other people eat the bones from the ground and humiliates the slave. And then in the other act, the slave master becomes blind, the slave goes mute, and then Vladimir takes advantage to bully the slave. And then by the end of the play, okay, this is why it's such a depressing play, Vladimir and Estrogen try to hang themselves with the belt, but the belt breaks. And the last scene says that tomorrow we will find a stronger rope. So you can sort of see that actually it's not really a, a very fun uh, play to watch. But I think that uh, it's, it's called the most significant play of the 20th century. So maybe you all should watch it sometime. But if you haven't seen it, you can sort of get the feel of it just from what I'm telling you. That, that it's filled with a lot of meanness, cruelty, selfishness, a lot of meaninglessness. And I think that when I thought of that play, I sort of compared the situation, that play, with what we've been reading in Israel in God's time, which actually makes uh, the book of Amos even more tragic than uh, Waiting for Godot. Because in Waiting for Godot, here is a play where truly there is no God. People are waiting, and they're waiting, and there's no God, and the people live as if there's no God. But as we've been looking at the book of Amos, uh, there is a real world of God's people in Israel. And they know God, they've been saved by God, they've been brought into the promised land by God, but yet they live lives like the people in waiting for Godot. Uh, lives of cruelty, 
abuse, suffering, sin, and unrighteousness. Now, why is this the case? Why is it God's people live in such a godless way? What is the problem? Why are they acting this way? And I think that the answer actually comes in today's passage. Now, today I'm just going to focus really on the, the sort of three visions. And you sort of think, well, there's only such a simple three visions. Uh, why is it uh, it's, I've got to spend so long on it? But actually, when you look at the visions, the visions are, excel, are themselves very deep and quite complicated. So he starts off with the first vision in verse 1, in chapter 7. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented, this will not happen. Now as we look at these uh, three visions, I think that they were given to us, they were written to us in a row, in sequence, in chronology, because they were meant to be understood that way. We cannot understand the visions by themselves, but they must be understood together. So in the first scene, in the first vision, God is preparing a swarm of locusts. And we ask ourselves, what is the big deal, right? I mean, they're just grasshoppers. They're just basically big grasshoppers, okay? Like, uh, they're like you know, what's wrong with grasshoppers? But obviously, in their day, in their age, in their time, there was no cold storage, there was no Sengxiong, there was no NTUC fair price. So basically, what you ate is what you harvested in the last harvest. So if you look very carefully here in verse 1 to 3, you can see that the, the king's share or the, what was meant for the king as a form of tax and tribute had been given to the king. And now the second crop, which was meant for the people, was being planted. Okay, So this crop was very, very vital because how they would live for the next six months depended on how this crop would go. But the problem was God had brought a swarm of locusts and in verse 2 they stripped the land clean. That's why it says there in verse 2, they stripped the land clean so that there was no longer any harvest for the people. And that meant that for the next six months, it just didn't mean that they didn't have bread so they would eat rice or noodles or something. It meant that they had no food whatsoever until the next harvest cycle. So that means that for the next six months, there was starvation, famine, suffering and death. Now how does Amos respond to this terrible uh, swarm of locusts? He doesn't uh, call the NEA and complain to them that they have a locust problem. right? He doesn't call the scientists to invent a better insecticide because it is not an ecological problem that he faces. But rather, Amos calls out to God because he sees that the swarm of locusts is part of God's judgment on his people. You see, God had already said when they entered the land in Deuteronomy chapter 28, which is up here, that if the people failed to obey God and failed to listen to His commands and decrees, He would bring locusts in judgment to His people. So in chapter 28, or 15, in verse 15, it says, However, if you do not obey your, the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Of which... Uh, the locusts, it says that you will sow much seed in the field and you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. And then it talks about worms and talks about exile. And then in verse 22 again, swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. 
So Amos sees the situation correctly. He sees it as it is. The swarm of locusts didn't come because of an ecological problem, but because of God's judgment upon His people. They were sinful. So as a prophet, he does what the prophet is supposed to do, and the prophet intercedes for his people. He cries out to God two things in verse 2. He says, forgive, first thing. And the second thing he cries out for, mercy. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. He cries out for forgiveness and he cries out for mercy. And it says there, God relented. This will not happen. Now what does this mean when it says, this will not happen? Okay, so it's, so far it's quite straightforward, right? Uh, God brought judgment. Amos interceded. He cries out for mercy. He asks for forgiveness. And then it says, this will not happen. Well, I think there are two ways to understand what it means when it says this will not happen, right? So maybe this will not happen in the sense that this whole vision never takes place, right? So he sees the vision, he sees the locusts, he sees the locusts eating the land clean, and God says this will not happen, that means the whole vision never becomes reality, okay? But some other people feel that when God says this will not happen, it means that the total destruction of God's people through starvation and famine will not happen. Okay, so if you look up here on the slide, I'll sort of help you see the two ways of reading it. And I think that the second way of reading it uh, helps us to understand a bit about what God had expected of His people. Because, in a sense, the vision comes, Amos intercedes, but what did God expect from His people? Well, remember in chapter 4, verse 9, God had said, right, next slide. God had said, Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, I struck them down with blight and mildew, locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me. Right, so what Amos did was what was expected of the prophet. The prophet is meant to intercede for his people, to pray for his people to beg for His people, but the people were meant to return back to God in response to His judgment. So Amos, the prophet, does what is expected, but the people didn't do what they were meant to do. They didn't come back to God, they didn't repent, they didn't return to God. That's the first vision. In the second vision, something similar happens. In verse 4 it says, This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Now, if you look at this vision, and you look at this second vision, uh, there is actually a connection, but we can't see it so well in the English. Okay? And the connection actually is the word devour. So you look very closely, right? It says uh, the, the fire or, or the judgment by the fire dried up the deed and devoured the land. It's actually the same word in verse 2 where the locusts had stripped the land clean. So the locusts devoured the land clean and here the, the fire devoured the land clean. Again, Amos is horrified and he intercedes for God's people. But there's one big difference, right, between what happens in the first vision and the second vision. In the second vision, 
there is no cry for forgiveness. Do you notice that? Look at what it says there in verse 5. Amos doesn't ask God to forgive. He just begs God for mercy. It's almost as if God has judged Israel and the sin of Israel has been piling up so great that Amos sees no point or doesn't expect to get forgiveness from God. Right? He asked for a second chance already. Now he asked for a second chance, but in the second chance, uh, the next second chance, he says, okay, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness because there's too much sin. I'm just going to beg for mercy because Israel cannot take the harshness of God's punishment. Now, when you look at uh, Amos' cry, when he says, oh, you know, Jacob... He's so small. He's basically asking God to give Israel mercy. He's basically saying, give compassion and pity on Israel. Don't destroy her totally by this fire, but but stop the judgment. Now, again, when we look at this vision, God replies in verse 6 and He says, So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. Now again, as in the first vision, do we see it in terms of the vision never becomes reality? Or do we see that what really happens is that the judgment by fire has already begun, it's dried up the great deep, it's devoured the land, but then God stops the total destruction of His people. Now that's so, again it relates back to chapter 4, right? So if you look back at chapter 4, God again shows a similar picture of this judgment by fire. In chapter 4 verse 7, he says, I also withheld rain from you, and when the harvest was still three months away, I sent rain to one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. The people staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. In verse 11, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick, snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me. So here if we understand this vision, going back to chapter 4, the judgment by fire, is it may not be a literal fire coming down from heaven, but it's the idea where the land becomes so hot by severe drought. Uh, i put some pictures for you. That, that, that it says here, the sea dries up and the land is devoured because there is, there is no rain. And, uh, and that's why when you look at the chapter 4 passage where it says, you were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, it shows that progressively this drought gets worse and worse and worse, where there's forest fire, and there's actual fires around Israel, that it feels as if there's judgment by fire. And again, the expectation is that when God's people see all these things, her response should be, the right response would be, to see that this is judgment from God and return back to God. But again, we see the prophet interceding for his people but we see that God's people do nothing at all. There's no repentance and there's no turning back. Okay, so there's the first vision. There's the second vision. Now the third vision. Verse 9, it reads, This is what God showed me. 
the Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I'm setting a plumb line among my people Israel, and I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Now here, as we look at this picture, uh, we see that God is standing with a plumb line. Now, uh, what, what is a plumb line? Now, a plumb line is, uh, oh, can't see very well, is, uh, it's, it's basically an ancient uh, way of, 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 of measuring the, the quality or the soundness of a wall. Okay, so the next slide is helpful, more helpful. Okay, so you see this man, basically just a, a, a string, and then you have a weighted thing at the bottom, and, and obviously gravity will hold the string straight. And then you put it next to a wall, and you'll be able to see if the wall is straight, or crooked, or whether there's a bulge, or whether there's, you know, the, the, the wall is tilted, and it's going to fall one way or another. And here... Uh, God gives the image that He is holding a plumb line. But the plumb line is against a wall which is no ordinary wall. Because here it says, God is setting a plumb line among my people Israel. So what He's showing is, next slide, is that this is Israel and God is holding a plumb line and, and He's measuring the soundness of Israel as if she were a wall. To see whether the wall needs to be knocked down and built again. Alright, whether to see whether it's really upright, whether it's straight. But as you can see, God says that He will spare them no longer because the plumb line has shown that God's people in Israel are not straight. The wall is crooked and cannot be saved. And here He says, because they are not straight, because they are unsound, the wall is going to topple, I will spare them no longer, it says. Now, as we compare this last vision, the third vision, with the other two visions, you'll see that once God says, I will spare them no longer, Amos cannot intercede anymore. Amos cannot pray for his people. There is no forgiveness to be prayed for. There is no mercy because God has said, I will not spare them any longer. So Amos has been like this uh, one-man prayer warrior, right? He's been praying and praying for his people, asking for second chance after second chance after second chance. But now, it seems as if the weight of the sin of God's people is so great that God says that there is no more room for intercession anymore. Because there is no repentance, there is no change, He will not spare them anymore. Judgment and destruction will come among God's people. Now, it's not as if, uh, the next slide, sorry. This plumb line is something which God did not tell His people what to expect. See this plumb line, next slide. This plumb line was actually the measure of God's people based on what He already told them, based on the covenant. Right, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, God had said very clearly, as you enter the land, this is what you need to do, right? This is like the plumb line by which I'm going to measure you by. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord has commanded me, so that you may carefully, sorry, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them 
carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? You see, when God measured His people with a plumb line, it wasn't with some invisible plumb line that they were not aware of. It's not something unfair to His people. But this plumb line is something that God's people were aware of. They knew it. They, when they went to the temple, when they heard the law, they were listening to it. And that's why in verse 9, God destroys the high places, the sanctuaries, and the house of Jeroboam. Because as we've seen, these are the main areas in which God had been offended by God's, by His people. In the areas of false worship and idolatry, in uh, the areas of oppression and injustice. Now as we look at this passage, I think that it really only speaks one clear resounding message to us and it's a great warning. Now I know in the Bible study there are these side questions which I sort of give you and I think some people talk about it in, the, in uh, some of the commentaries but this is not about the power of intercessory prayer, right? That's not what this passage is about. It's not about encouraging us to pray like Amos although there's a place for praying like Amos. It's not about uh, discussing philosophically whether when God sends uh, uh, tragedy or disaster, whether He is uh, you know, warning us because we're not living rightly. That's a, there's a place for that, but that's not what the main message is here. The main message is of repentance. The main message is God's people could not be saved any longer because they would not repent. Amos bought them time. When he prayed for them, he stalled judgment. He gave them second chance, after second chance, after second chance. But up to a point, there were no more second chances for God's people. And I think that that is a really, really important lesson for us today. If we just learn that one lesson, I'm happy, right? That we cannot presume on God's patience. That God will not... Be patient with us forever and ever and ever if we choose to turn away from Him and we choose not to repent. We cannot presume on God's patience. So if you're here today and you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, then I think that's a lesson for you as well, that today you really need to hear that God will not be patient with you forever and ever and ever and ever. See, I know of uh, many people who I've tried to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. And they, they maybe they know about the Bible, they've come to a talk, maybe they've come to Christian Explore, they've done a Bible study, maybe they've just had a conversation. And they will say, okay, I, I don't want to become a Christian. But it's not an intellectual issue. It is a repentance issue. They don't want to believe in Jesus because they don't want to repent of the lifestyle that they have. They don't want to give up the sins or they don't want to change their lifestyle in order to make it righteous and godly. So I'm sure that some of you have the experience where some people will say, Oh, you know, I will become a Christian when I get older after I've managed to 
and have some fun in my life. And by the word fun, they mean do sinful things. Lah. I've met other people who say, oh, uh, after reading the Bible a few times to me, they say, oh, I'll become a Christian when I'm much older. Maybe when I'm retired or at my deathbed. Because at that point in time, then I'll be ready for God. One of the saddest things that I witnessed uh, before was uh, I remember evangelizing a cancer patient. This man had cancer. And I shared the gospel with him. I talked to him about Jesus. And his words to me was that it's not the right time for me to become a Christian. And I remember thinking to myself, if you have cancer and you only have a few months to live, what is the right time for you to become a Christian? It's not as if God is giving you many, many years to come to Christ. You've only got a couple of months left. And actually, indeed, the guy that I was sharing this gospel with, I still remember his face, I still remember him. He died a few months later without becoming a Christian. See, how can you, how can, I still can't get over how he could think to himself that it is not the right time to become a Christian when he had cancer. And I think that for many people, they have the attitude, isn't it? They procrastinate, they procrastinate, they delay, they delay, they think that God will give them second chance after second chance after second chance. They presume on God's patience, but at the end, God's patience comes to an end and it will be too late. God will say, I will spare you no longer. So Romans chapter 2, if you look up here in the slide, uh, God says, or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. You see, if you are given patience, and someone is very patient of you, very tolerant, very kind, but you keep presuming upon that patience and kindness and you just were really unwilling to turn back and you're stubborn, then one day it is too late for you anymore when God's patience runs out and you merely stored up for yourself, wrath against yourself. And I think this is a lesson for us as we look at these three visions. Israel had one chance, didn't turn back. Second chance, didn't turn back. The last chance, and it was too late. Now for those of us as Christians, as God's people, I think that this is a warning for us too. I wonder whether if God were to hold up a plumb line to your life and measure your life, measure the soundness of your relationship with Him, measure your righteousness before Him, whether we will be found wanting based on what we already know on God's Word. Right, if He were to measure you, what would He really think of your relationship with Him, of your faith in Jesus Christ? There is no doubt today as Christians, we are different from the people of Amos' time. All right, so next slide. All right, we, are, we are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ on the cross. We are saved by the death of Jesus on the cross. It is by His blood that our sins are paid for. But the question is, are we really in Jesus Christ? And are we really 
showing our faith in Jesus Christ in the way that we act. Because if our lives have sins which are unrepented for, if we continue to harbor sin and and cherish those sins in our lives, it may be the same sins in the book of Amos, uh, greed, idolatry, sexual sins, cruelty, pride, no love for neighbor, and if we are unwilling to change, then the same way God is angry with us. We may not find ourselves in Christ at all because we think that God is going to forgive us over and over and over again and so we keep indulging these sins over and over again. But the lesson for us is these unconfessed and unrepented sins will actually separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. It will separate us from the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. We will no longer be in Christ. Now, I think that uh, what was really helpful once was when I was reading a book uh, about pornography and I was talking about what, how, how do we uh, see unrepentant sin or persistent sin. So they gave this uh, very vivid illustration of how imagine you're walking down the road, just walking down the street, minding your own business, and then all of a sudden you fall into this hole in the ground. Okay, And this hole in the ground represents a sin in your life. It may be pornography for some people, it may be pride, it may be greed, it may be something, right? But there's this big hole in the ground, you didn't expect it, you're walking along and you fell into it. Tomorrow, you walk down uh, the streets of your town again and you look for the street where you fell down into that big hole. And you choose that street purposely in order to walk down the street knowingly so that you fall down that hole. And you go and do this again and again, year after year, week after week, day after day, month after day, uh, month after month. And I think that that book was very right in saying that is rebellious, persistent, and unrepentant sin. Because you've chosen that path, you choose to walk down the street, you choose to go down the street which you know there's a hole in the ground where the sin is, and you purposely walk down the street to fall down that hole. And you keep doing it over and over again. The book says that repentant sin, uh, sin which you're actively fighting against, is very different, isn't it? Because you're walking down the street, again, you fall down that hole, you're in that hole, you think, my goodness, what happened to me here? I'm, I've fallen to sin, into temptation, I've sinned against God. You climb out of that, that, that big hole that you found yourself into, and you choose to repent. Uh, there is remorse in you. You 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 don't want to go down the street anymore. You block off that street. You 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 have accountability partners. You tell other people about how you fell down the street and how you never want to go down the street again. You never want to go down that hole again. You read the Bible. You pray to God for strength. You confess to God of how you struggle with this sin. You uh, read books of how not to sin again in that way, and you avoid the street. And maybe another day you're walking down another street in that town of yours, and you fall into another hole. And you say, oh gosh, I fall into another hole. Okay, I get out of that hole, and I say, okay, I'm not going down the street anymore. I'm not going to walk down the street. Again, I I avoid the street and do other things. And I think that book was very right. That is a life which is repentant. A life where you actually actively choose not to sin. You you, you take steps to avoid sin. You you hate going down the street. You don't want to find yourself on the street anymore. And I think that that's where 
there is a real difference between a repentant life and an unrepentant life. A life which chooses to go down those streets and to fall down those holes which you know are there and to willingly choose to do over and over again. And a life where you block off those streets and don't want to fall down those holes. And although you may fall down here and there, you choose to avoid those areas and keep avoiding those areas. You see, Jesus said very clearly in Matthew 5 that God's attitude, that His attitude to sin is no different from God here in Amos, isn't it? You've heard it said, it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin and cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I think we must understand here that the attitude of Jesus and the attitude of Amos is the same, isn't it? Both of them see the absolute horror of God's judgment. Right? That, that both Amos and Jesus both say, look, you know, sin and judgment and hell are just such terrible, terrible things. I mean, that's why Amos intercedes over and over again for his people because he doesn't want that future for them. Because God is a patient God, God is a loving God, and God is a merciful God. But God is also a God of pure holiness. He's also a God of justice. And there comes a point in time where once you sin beyond a certain point, there will be no point of return for you. Because you choose not to come back to you. Not to come back to God and not to repent to Him. You have stored up for yourselves treasure in this world. You've chosen all these sins against your relationship with God. And as a result, as a result you can't come back to Him anymore. Now in conclusion, uh, the reason why I thought of this play Waiting for Godot was because, uh, the next slide, to me, uh, it was such a, a play of uh, meaninglessness and, and tragedy and sin and unrighteousness in this world where there is no God. And as you can see in one of the clips I got, uh, because it's a play, everything is very visual, right? You know, that's what plays are like, right? You, you see the sinfulness of people, everything out in the open. So here is a scene where there's a slave master, the slave and everything, right? But obviously when we live in this world, we are very good at hiding our true motives, our heart, and uh, what's really in our mind. I mean, we don't go out and live like in a play where we show everybody everything, right? Now, the sad thing is, in Waiting for God, though, they really live where there is knife with no God. But the problem for us is, we can live in a world where we pretend there's a God, but inside of our hearts, we live as if there is no God. We live as if we are like in the play Waiting for God. And the reason why we live that way is because we live in sin and rebellion and we think that God will keep forgiving us over and over and over again. But as we can see here in this passage, there comes a point in time where God's patience is, 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 is over with. There is no more patience left for you. As we looked in the book of Hebrews, as a, at a certain point, there is no sacrifice for sin left for you. 
So my prayer for you, and my hope for all of us here is that if you are in that position, I don't know who is in that position, if you find yourself indulging in sin over and over and over again, if you're unrepentant about your sin, then you need to come back because you're in a very, very dangerous place. If you do not yet know Jesus and you think that there is always tomorrow or next year or 10 years' time before you become a Christian, and again, the warning for you is God's patience is actually calling you towards repentance and calling you back to Him. Do not presume on God's patience because there may be a point in time where God's patience runs out and there is no more time for repentance for you. So let's go to God now and really help us to learn that lesson that God is a patient God, but that patience has limits and that truly we need to turn back to Him in repentance and to put our faith fully in Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for these simple three visions that you gave to Amos. We pray that we may respond differently than your people in Amos' time. That if given a second chance and another chance and another chance, we will not sin persistently, that we will not sin rebelliously, but that we will repent of our sin. We will take every effort to change, to turn back, to allow the Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus, to shape our lives, to make Jesus as Lord of our lives. Dear Father, help us to see that you are a patient God, that you are a merciful God, that you are a gracious God. But your patience has limits, dear Father. Help us to see that if we continue to sin persistently and rebelliously, though no one can see, yet you have a plumb line that measures our hearts. And that if that plumb line finds us wanting and outside of Jesus Christ, we will face eternal judgment in hell. Help us therefore to take warning and to take heed and to never persistently turn away from you or to sin against you, but to always seek your righteousness in everything we do. And dear Father, if there are some of us here who have yet to acknowledge Jesus totally as our Lord and our Saviour, Dear Father, continue to have mercy on them, but to help them to see that they need to turn back to you as soon as possible, for your patience may also come to an end with them. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.